We're trying to get hold of Dr. Atia Mossam, who is the public health medicine specialist and co-founder of FACT, that is the public health action team. And we are going to engage him about COVID-19. Of course, I'm not a health practitioner nor specialist in any particular way. And especially in the light of heightened public panic and a lot of misinformation floating about, I think it's best for me not so much to ask too many questions, but rather yield to him to, if you like, give a lecture for the next 20 minutes or so in relation to covid 19 what the president has said the implications for us as ordinary south african citizens what it is that we can do in terms of adjusting our behavior pros cons do's don'ts totally negotiable absolutely non-negotiable completely encouraged completely banned any and everything to do with how we as a nation now respond to what has been declared by the president a national disaster and the measures in place as a result of this national disaster that have since been announced by the broader cabinet. Dr. Atia Mossam, public health medicine specialist and co-founder of FACT. Sir, good evening. Thank you so much for your time. Sorry, 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 sorry. Ma'am, ma'am, Atia, big <laughs> Sorry, Atia, how are you? Not a problem. Well in you. Well, thank you. As I was saying whilst Lesejo was on the phone with you, I don't really want to prompt you with questions because I might not necessarily respond to the uh-huh. critical information that ought to really be sort of distributed through this channel. So without saying much, I'm going to, if you like, treat this as a lecture. I'll represent yeah. the student as the South African community who are listening will, and you can be the lecturer for the purposes of just engaging us following the announcements made by the president and those earlier today by the balance of the cabinet. Okay, great. Um I'm just going to give you a bit of background as to the public health action team and why we made the call that we did. Um, I'm sure you've seen the petition that we sent out. And, you know, we, we really do understand the economic implications in a country such as South Africa where we have an economic downturn and we didn't take the petition lightly and thought that with the current amount of uh, cases, and we do commend the National Department of Health and the NICD on ensuring that, you know, they trace people and tested. But our great fear was that as cases increase, and cases increasing is really a testament to the testing that they were doing, but we felt that as cases increase, it does get more difficult to track people, and it was only a matter of time before one of those cases presented in the community. And as we all heard from President Cyril Ramaphosa yesterday, um, that is in fact the case at the moment. Sure. So um, from the petition we asked for, we asked for a range of things, and generally we are quite happy with the measures that have been put in place and with the speed with, I think, our government has um, acted. We, it's been 10 days since the first case to these measures. And by and large, these are good measures, but there are a few things that we still feel need to put into place. And that's really what I'm going to be chatting to you a little bit about as to where we see the gaps are and what South Africans can do. Go ahead, so, um Basically, you know, it's a fantastic thing that they've closed schools. I see a lot of the universities as well have had meetings and they're putting into place measures so that people can either work from home, etc. But I think, and I'm, I'm saying all of this with the caveat that I didn't uh, get a chance to watch the, the ministerial meeting this afternoon, this morning, and mm. so 
correct me if something has been put into place. But by and large, we felt that, you know, without real sort of economic measures um, to assist people whose children are in school, whose, uh, for example, people who are, you know, uh, single parents, anyone whose children might be um, sort of dependent on school feeding schemes, uh, we felt, or even casual workers who don't necessarily um, have the means to have alternative childcare arrangements. We felt that without some sort of measures, either you know from the government or from employers, this really would uh, prove to be a bit of a gap in the strategy. And so in terms of practical things that South Africans can do, we really are calling on people to try and take into account, especially casual workers and people who mm. might mm. be... Um, at risk, you know, might not have access to sick leave, uh, who have sort of a no work, no pay type of uh, situation, and to really chat to the employees, understand what it is that their circumstances are, and if possible, you know, allow people to stay at home and still pay them a salary so that they are able to uh, stay at home and also they are able to self-isolate because if, you know, they do get ill, we don't want a situation where people feel that they should be coming to work um, because they won't get paid otherwise. Um, the other issues that we, you know... Before you uh, get on to that, I do... Sorry, yeah. sorry so much, Atia. I do want to reinforce the very importance of casual workers who, out of yes. just about all of South African society at this stage, are the most vulnerable. Not only are they casual workers, so that automatically, for the most part, in the South African economy, makes them vulnerable economically, mm-hmm. even it would follow that their health would be as not necessarily compromised, but as vulnerable. Economically now, they lie to be exposed with their quarantining of mm-hmm. all people. And of course, because they have to make ends meet, they will take the inherent risk of engaging themselves in the use of mass public transport systems, continuously mm-hmm. being in the line of fire stroke danger. I even suggested on my Twitter handle that it is enough, as I do, and as I have said to mine, Please do not come in on the days that you're scheduled to come in, but nonetheless, in turn, I will make sure that what you were otherwise due, you get, and I'll just have to deal with that loss. I think over and above anything else, at a bare minimum, it is the moral thing to do. Yes, and I totally agree. I mean, it's very easy for many of us and, you know, all of the people who have access to social media, um, you know, and who are sitting at home because we all have desktop-based sort of uh, jobs, it's very easy for us to sit at home and self-quarantine because we get paid regardless. Um, It is, And we are not the vulnerable population. The vulnerable population is those people who don't have that luxury of sitting at home. Wonderful. You want to carry on with that other suggestions yeah. you would have, please? So, I mean, some of the other things that, you know, this is just sort of picking up on social media, and I understand people are, uh, you know, are not, um, sometimes they, they panic, and people don't really uh, understand the different types of messaging. There's, you know, fake news going around, and so some of the things that I've picked up, you know, are around the masks and hand sanitizers. And I, I really just want to say to people, you know, certain things we really we really need people to um, assist us with, and that is to not, you know, sort of commodify certain things. So sanitizers have been seeing exorbitant amounts, uh, you know, prices on sanitizers and on masks being sold. I'm very glad I'm seeing in social media certain community groups have been deleting posts 
And so, you know, we make a plea to people to, um, especially people who can afford you, if, if you can afford these things, if you can afford groceries, please don't stockpile them. Don't stockpile masks or sanitizers and sell them at an increased price. Um, don't go and, you know, loot, not loot, but don't go and uh, raid the stores and buy everything because what this means is the vulnerable population, again, the casual workers, pensioners who rely on their pension, can't go out when they actually have money and buy things if there's nothing in the store. We've seen it already today. Um, if you go into the stores, people buying loads of toilet paper. And at the end of the day, we are not in a state of emergency. We are continuing in some ways as normal. We've kept our borders somewhat for a stall to allow for supply chain, so to allow for goods to flow in and out of the country. And so there really is no need to panic. There's really no need for us to commodify things. Uh, with regards to the masks, we know worldwide there's a shortage. We are asking that people allow for the mask to be for those who have symptoms and for medical workers so that we do not run out of masks when we really need them. Um, and You would I have to educate the people who are wearing masks. They believe, and I believe it is a sense, mm. a false sense of security that their masks will shield them from harm's way. Why would somebody be buying a mask? What is the common misconception about the value of the mask? And in line with your suggestion, why should yeah. they generally keep away from owning or wearing one? So, you know, there's different types of masks. The masks that we are seeing people generally wear, I'm sure you've seen other surgical masks, the very uh, thin sort of papery ones. Um, and those uh, masks, and even when they are worn in um, the surgical setting, are generally to prevent the medical team from spreading disease into the patient, into their open, uh, you know, mm, um, mm, into mm. the theater setting. So... From what the literature is saying is that the mask doesn't actually prevent you from getting the disease. It prevents you from giving other people the disease. And that is where we are advocating for the mask to be only for those who are symptomatic. Because when you are symptomatic, that means you are coughing. And when you are coughing, you are spreading the particles out. And so the mask would then prevent you from spreading those particles. It wouldn't necessarily prevent the particles from coming um, into basically from you contacting them because remember it's not it's not also airborne so it's not that for example like TB where you are walking through an area and there's TB and then somebody yes. had coughed and you'd walk through it this is quite different it is from contact so the more important than a mask is you washing your hands because you will touch a surface and then touch your mouth or touch your eyes and that is how it will get through you won't necessarily be walking around and breathing it in. So that is why we are advocating that allow it only for people who are symptomatic, who are actively coughing the virus out. Yeah, 011-482-1510, 011-482-9216. We are in conversation with Dr. Atia Mosam, Public Health Medicine Specialist and Co-Founder of the Public Health Action Team. We are asking questions around COVID-19 and its increasing presence in the country. The last number I heard was 61, and of course I would imagine, as is the condition of this disease, the number might be high. The question we are asking, among many others, what scares you about COVID-19? Do you know enough about 
about the virus? Do you know how to keep yourself, your family, and in particular children and the aged safe? These are the questions that perhaps more than I can, Dr. Atia Mosa might be able to answer. We are, of course, responding to the national the state of disaster, which is not a state of emergency, which is a critical distinction for it does, of course, trigger different responses from the state, a disaster versus a state of emergency, Dr. Atiyah Mosam. Yes, so, I mean, I think at the end of it, and and you're making quite a clear distinction here, you know, state of disaster means that we are calling on all of our leadership to basically band together, redirect resources, and ensure that um, we address the situation at hand. A state of emergency means sort of the military comes in and, you know, everyone gets shut down and we really take very stringent measures. And so that is why we're saying to people, we really want you to, you know, practice social solidarity principles, which is not, the president has not done this so that, um, you know, to cause panic. The petition that we sent out as well was not to induce any sort of panic, but it is to say that we as a country understand, I think more than a lot of other countries, we have a very large vulnerable population who will suffer quite early if we are allow the uh, virus to spread widely and we don't take um, these measures into account. And so... You know, our plea really is there's a lot of message, messaging around what, is, um, around what social solidarity means, um, around what you should and shouldn't be doing. We really plea for workplaces to, you know, take into account people's personal situations. And we hope that South Africa can band together to, to help fight this as we, we know we can. Has a travel ban been placed on products coming from high-risk countries? And I think that's a fair question coming from Vuyo and Bloemfontein. In the light of the earlier concession you had made in the sense that we still have open, close quote, porous borders. And that is something that really should concern South Africans because we know the easy transmission of the disease and it can last on a particular service from the drop for a couple of days after that. And that is all enough to in the way of products that are coming in, say from your China, your Italy, your UK, your USA, major trading partners with the country. So how then are we not just limiting the human movement, but also the goods that could equally bear the contamination? Yeah, look, I unfortunately am not able to comment on that. I would hope um, that there are decontamination processes in place um, for goods that are coming into the the country from high-risk areas. Um, like I said, unfortunately, I didn't end up watching the ministerial um, uh, press conference earlier today. But, um, you know, it is a, it's a fair question, as you say, and it's a fair risk. And I'm sure that, you know, in consultation with the Ministry of Health, um, the different ministries have taken these things into account. One hopes, one hopes. We've got a plethora of calls. Let's say, please move this. We have one, two, three calls on the line. Mike, sorry, it's anonymous in Hermanus, then Mike in Durban, please. Very Hello? quickly, your calls, please, anonymous in Hermanus. Hello, um, I'm just inquiring uh, from the lady, your guest. Um, Dr. Atia um, Mossam, yes. Uh, if um, uh, if the person with uh, or if there's no facilities in the store and uh, you know the the people that have the funds can the, uh, purchase 
everything from the shelves and the disadvantaged or the pensioners does not have could could they wear gloves uh, you know ordinary hand gloves uh, after washing their hands mm-hmm. and could they wear uh, those who are muslims could they wear the parda you know the cover the face sure thank you so instead of the uh, nose mask we appreciate your call. Thank you so Thank much, Anonymous, calling us from Hermanus in the Western Cape. Beautiful part of the country there. Mike in Durban, you're going to ask a very quick call, after which we go to Romeo in the Free State. Good evening. Indeed. Can you hear me? We can, Mike. Shoot, please. Right. Uh, good evening to your guest, yes, the doctor. Uh, Hi, Mike. A few years, I'm a pollution activist. A few years ago, we went to the... Uh, Dame City building and there's a supermarket and my wife came out when I unpacked at home uh, fresh frozen food in packets from China well it went out the door quicker than it came in uh, and this comes from the east of China so your comment is Mike Okay, very well. No, we get that. Thank you so much, Mike. Calling us in Durban, Dr. Tiamosam has made a note of that. Let's go to the Free State now. Romeo, good evening. Good evening to you, my brother. How are you? Well, sir, how are you? What's your question for Dr. And Tia? Also to your guest, uh, good evening. Uh, brothers and guests, you know, mm. this morning I was listening to our uh, contingents of ministers as they were giving the outline how we should present this disease and um, also to the public how we should conduct ourselves but i thought maybe also the radio um, community radios they must be in a situation like that they must be also connected to life so that everybody could have an access other than possible maybe sfm radio uh, talk show 702 Radio 2000, as we know that the young ones, normally they favor these radios, community radios, over the issue of music and uh, politics, they normally try to stay away from it. So I was thinking that uh, during the course of announcement of that nature, also our community radios must also um, help um, the sister companies um, media to disseminate the information mm, mm, to mm. everyone in the best uh, language of our mothers yeah. so that nobody will remain without Absolutely. any information but rather everybody should get information but I also finally to say I'm really very much happy with the, the way government is doing and uh, keep it up to all our ministers you have shown us that you are really committed i think it's high time for the private companies also to come on board and also for every company wherever we go uh, to the main gate must be sanitized for everyone who goes to any company wherever we go excellent uh, those measures must be uh, in place let's try to follow all those instructions from the government to help them. I think that's what I, I should say this evening. Thank you, fingers.
Excellent. Thank you so much. We appreciate that call, and I think that's uh, a point not necessarily for a response or discussion, but it is a very critical point. The availability of information using community radio stations, especially in the local language, so that the community, especially those who are outside the mainstream, call it whatever you want, of information distribution and dissemination. But there was a concern in relation to food from China, from Mike in Durban, mm-hmm. as well as a question around gloves and the polka, if I understood that correctly, for the purposes yeah. of Muslim persons and their protection if you like, from the condition. Do you want to respond to those two? First to Anonymous about gloves and the polka and then to Mike about food from China. Yeah, so I, I, I didn't really get the... There was a, there was a bit of a connection to uh, the food in the uh, not getting supply, but from what I'm gathering that the lady was asking is whether it's okay to wear gloves and to use the panda. So, I mean, in terms of, the, in terms of um, gloves, it's if you are in a situation where, you know, you, for example, working in a store and you you want to, you know, sort of prevent touching a lot of different things, for example, handling money or handling credit cards, then gloves are a feasible thing to use. Um, you must just ensure that when you do take them off, you know, um, people should watch. There are videos on, on how to de-glove yourself so you don't actually, want, you know, touch the, inside, the gloves outside and contaminate yourself. And then... Even though you have been wearing gloves, you still need to wash your hands. Um, the same with a mask. There's a way to put on a mask, and there's a way to take off a mask, and you still need to wash your hands then. So these things are sort of barrier methods, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be using, you shouldn't be practicing good hand hygiene. Um, in terms of the parda, again, I mean, I don't see any particular reason why uh, someone shouldn't, if it is their, is their garb that they do wear. Um, I wouldn't say that they shouldn't. It's not, as I said, with the mask, it's not really going to protect you from um, from uh, receiving the virus. Um, however, if you do have a if you do have symptoms, I would suggest that you wear the mask underneath because I don't. I'm not convinced that the that the, the fabric of the padai is actually a, enough of a barrier to prevent people from getting. The, um, you know, from you from spreading the virus out to others. Um, in terms of the Chinese produce, I have to apologize to the gentleman. I, again, I don't know enough about this. You know, it has to do, I don't know whether the virus would die or not die, um, what temperatures it was, the food was kept at, whether it was significant, you know, cold chain. So um, I, would, I wouldn't be able to make a comment either way to say, you know, throw the food away or don't throw the food away, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, sure. I do want to reiterate the last gentleman. I think um, he made two very good points, and I think those are something that we we do need to think about, is that um, not everyone, I know for all of us who have social media, we feel like we are being inundated with information, but he makes a really good point about community radio, and my worry is that we are not getting out enough information into you know, sort of informal settlements where places where people don't maybe access, um, you know, rural areas and people who don't, the elder generation who might not necessarily use Facebook or Twitter and who need this information as well. Um, and then finally, the private company makes, again, a valid point about private companies coming on board, especially the private sector for health. Um, you know, they are, this is a time, it's a public health emergency. We need to have one health sector, we can't be having a public and a private sector. And we also really call upon the private sector to 
decreased the cost of testing, medical aid to pay the testing um, for members regardless of the benefit package. And, and the gentleman was right. We really do need everyone now to come on board regardless of where and which sector they are in. The petition, I, I might have missed um, the strategy because I understand mm-hmm. it to be a mobilization strategy. And I think there have been a couple of concessions made, both by you as well as Romeo in particular, in that there are many who are off media, who are not necessarily onboarded with technology. How mm-hmm. do we ensure that their concerns nonetheless, and I would even argue their concerns under the circumstances, are probably more in the line mm-hmm of an emergency, so to speak, given the fact that there would be the inherent information, a symmetry one on the one end, and equally the resources to be able to fight the threat that is posed to them by COVID-19 will probably be worse hitting to them than it might be, yeah. say, somebody like me and you. Yeah. You know, the the very, the very difficult challenge with the COVID-19 is that, um, you know, the structures that we have in place uh, of sort of community health workers going out and of having uh, clinic committees and um, your work counselors, et cetera, and having sort of town meetings and those type of the usual information channels we have are actually not uh, something that's feasible because we can't have these sort of mass gatherings. And so it is quite difficult for us to to, to get people's, um, their concerns on board because we we can't actually engage with them in that manner anymore. Mm. I think um, for community radio, having more, um, you know, talk shows like this, where you have someone who is addressing people's concerns, as Romeo said, in the language that is prevalent in that area, because as you can hear from the type of discussion and the type of questions we're getting, people are really worried about the practicalities of what does this mean for me? Like, do I throw away clothes? Can I wear gloves? What happens about uh, going to school? Do, can I get onto a taxi? You know, those type of things. And I think community radio, I have to agree, is maybe some way of um, allowing people to ask those questions. I know there's a lot of questions on social media. People are asking each other, you know, what do I do? What do I do? But obviously, as the gentleman said, that's not um, accessible to everyone. So we'll need these type of platforms um, to allow people to engage. And, you know, we're always learning in terms of this is a new sort of, you know, it's a new situation for most of us. And we're always learning on what to do. But I think, you know, as as this evolves, if we, we really should take what kind of pay attention, the Department of Health, I'm sure they swamped, but pay attention to the type of questions that people are asking and send out then Mm. communicates to that effect. Um, you know, you can, you can in a way gather for what people's concerns are. And if you pay attention to social media, you'll see, you know, some of the similar type of questions come up. And so it is very difficult because you can't do one-on-one contact or you can't do big group gatherings. But I think hopefully we can, we can find ways to, you know, make sort of these measures for no, no, I accept. No, I accept. I, I, I'm rushed for time somewhat, um, and I have a plethora of questions that are coming through on our social media platforms. Some of them have actually 
in my view, picked up a traction which I'm not altogether sure is a credible one, but nonetheless, it is a narrative that is, in my view, a disconcerting one, whether it be true or not. And this is an opportunity, at least to the extent that we have the people switched on, an opportunity to clarify one or two things. Is there any link between the virus attaching to a body by way of race? In other words, who is more at risk or are we all equally the same in terms of our exposure to COVID-19, race-wise? Okay, so, yeah. Um, so, I don't know where this is, is coming from, you know, if there is some article somewhere. My, um, from my medical opinion, based on what I know of how the virus transmits, is that it enters into your air passages and then um, enters your body in that way, causing an inflammation in your lungs. Um, that, you know, I don't think has any bearing on any, no one's race has any bearing on the insides of your, um, of your airways. Sure. So I, from just from, you know, using um, sort of my medical knowledge, wouldn't think that there is um, any difference. Um, you know, there are, I will say in South Africa, there are some disparities in the way that um, the burden of disease in amongst different mm. racial groups. And so, for example, we know the burden for HIV and TB is higher in our black population. That is a fact in South Africa. And so, it's, if this plays out, it is more likely to get into a community that that is the population that is going I, I think I need an opportunity just to quickly respond to that. Um, mm. the, the, the prevalence of HIV and AIDS in the black community. Mm. Please, please dissect that statement without more to become a very dangerous one. What do you mean by that and what exactly is the point of what you have said? Well, what I'm saying is, I'm, I'm trying to clarify, what I'm saying is that um, because the prevalence is higher, we know amongst that, you know, in the black racial group, um, the, the people in that group are generally, will be more susceptible because of the immunocompromise. It's got nothing to do with their race. It is by virtue of the fact that they have um, comorbid diseases which are more prevalent than other racial groups, which will make them susceptible to the, to the virus. So what I'm saying is that a race doesn't necessarily make you susceptible, but because of the structural inequities in South Africa that have led to certain diseases being more prevalent in certain racial groups, it therefore makes certain racial groups more susceptible to the disease. Excellent. 2143, thanks for your time, Dr. Atiyah Mossam.